You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So, um, so check it out. So we're going to do something a little, uh, we're going to keep going, I should say, from what we did last week. We're kind of piggybacking uh, where we began as we unfolded Genesis, the creation narrative, and we saw the increasing dependence upon God that God was forming in God's design for creation and how that increasing dependence leads to an increasing commitment from us towards self-giving love. And this goes along with our conversation on this idea of the grace, the gift of difference and the grace of unity because the grand thesis is simple Unity is an outcome of a, of, a, of a way of life that the people of God embrace. It's not something that we work to achieve. It's something that happens when we're faithful. That's the big, the big idea. Now, in your YouVersion apps, if you're with us online, go ahead and go there. If you if you're, use the YouVersion here, you might want to go ahead and launch it. The first verse I read is not going to be on the screen, but all the verses that I read from here are going to be on the screen because we're going to do a little Bible study. Y'all with me? We good? So we're going to do a little Bible study. I'm going to try and wrap it up with some practice, um, and then we're going to meet at the table. All right, so, so I, I'm going to ask you to stay with me the best you can. Uh, so we're going to open with Genesis 2, verses 1 through 4. The heavens and the earth and all who live in them were completed. On the sixth day, God completed all the work that he had done, and on the seventh day, God rested from all the work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all the work of creation. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So last week, we can't uncover the first six days of the creation story, contrasted with creation myths, where humanity is formed out of violence and rivalry from other creation stories, contrast the creation story of the Hebrew scriptures, the one that we believe to be true, and how God creates out of love and desire so that humans can be a part of God's life rather than just mere slaves and servants, and then not talk about Sabbath. But there was no way to talk about Sabbath last week. I needed to Sabbath from that sermon because um, it was getting a little long. So today, we're going uh, to embrace it. All right. So now, as Christians, many of us have been taught to pay little attention to the Sabbath because, you know, we would say old law stuff. That's how we talk about it. That was old covenant, old law. And we have this sort of impression that what was gone before has no application to the present, which is really strange because if there wasn't a Hebrew Scriptures, we wouldn't have an idea who Jesus is. There was no promise, prophesied Messiah, we wouldn't know what's going on. Right? So we need the Hebrew Scriptures. As Paul even said about the Hebrew Scriptures, all things that were written before time are written for our instruction and learning so that through those scriptures we can find hope and endurance. Amen. We need to know our own story. So I want to talk about Sabbath. And I want to, I want to remind us that, that I realize that Sabbath is not something we all know very well. In U.S. culture, some of us remember the idea of a, quote, Christian Sabbath, which for us, you know, was relegated to Sunday, like to, to this day. And, and it was generally this idea of Christian Sabbath in, in, a, in, in what's called like a Christendom world, where, where Christianity is kind of a a cultural commitment, regardless of it being legit or not, it becomes kind of a, a cultural commitment. We know Christian Sabbath ideas because some of us grew up with this idea of blue laws. Anybody remember blue laws? Yeah, oh, okay, yeah. Us young people remember the blue laws. Um, blue laws happened primarily in the South, 
which would be known as the Bible Belt. And on Sunday, what it meant was because of commitments to a Christian Judea ethic, you couldn't buy alcohol on Sundays. Some of us may remember that Major League Baseball games couldn't go um, beyond the sixth inning if it crossed 6 o'clock. What informed all that? Well, this idea that came from the Puritans. The Puritans came here with kind of a moralistic take of Sabbath. Sunday became known as kind of a day of rest. And growing up, when my mom and dad, when we had to live with my dad's mother and father, my dad's mother and father, my dad's father's a preacher, he's a missionary in South Africa, still is in his like late 90s. Um, I, when I grew up with them, the preacher would always take a nap on Sundays. He wouldn't do anything with me because he would say that's the day of rest. Now, I've tried that on my son on a regular Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It doesn't work. But growing up in my home, the day of rest meant you didn't gr cut grass on a Sunday and you didn't clean house on a Sunday. That's why on Saturday mornings during the cartoon times, I was scrubbing toilets while all my friends were watching cartoons because Sunday was a day of rest. That's how we understood it. What ends up happening because of the Puritan religious tradition and the strict understanding of faith that they brought to us, developing this sort of skewed, thin view of Sabbath, led us to believe that that's all really Sabbath is in the Christian tradition, and it's just simply rest. But it's more than that biblically, like theologically, like within our own story. It's thicker and far more formative and extends to us a beautiful invitation this side of the cross and becomes the pivot point pivot point, that the heart of Sabbath, Sabbath as sacred rest and neighborly solidarity, that understanding of Sabbath becomes a pivot point to anything that has to do with unity. So in what we call the Ten Commandments, we find the command of Sabbath. Now, stay with me. Sabbath command is the fourth command, which then means it's situated, right, between the first three commands. And what you'll notice about the first three commands in the Ten Commandments is the first three commands have to do with God's worth and God's relationship to humanity. Are you with me? Come on. All right, all right, y'all know I got self-esteem issues. I'm gonna need some nonverbals with all the masks. All right. So that that's what and then the last four, the last commands, the last five commands are concerned mostly with neighborliness. In the middle is this command on Sabbath. Exodus 20, verse 8. Here's the command. Come on. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. Everybody say, to the Lord. So it's to the Lord. It's not to you. It's not to me. It's to the Lord. That makes sense coming out of the first three verses, the first three commands, right? God's saying, here's who I am. You need to do this because of who I am. But then listen to what God says. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock are the foreigner who is within your gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and declared it holy. Now, who's commanded by God to rest? You, your son and your daughter, your male and female slaves. So you don't get to take off and have your slaves cook your dinner. They get off too. There's lots of ethical implications to that that we won't get into here. But just notice that Yahweh sees all of humanity. 
But not just the slaves, also the foreigner. But not just the humans, also your donkeys, your livestock. Sabbath is a day of equality where equity in the presence of God is found. Come on now. Everybody embraces sacred rest. And nobody has authority over anybody, period. And it's practiced and it's remembered on Sabbath. Even the livestock should rest because the ground should rest because creation should rest. 45 times the word Sabbath appears in the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures alone. Several times it's implicit. Most times it's explicit. I want to present to you this idea of Sabbath, that Sabbath is about sacred rest and neighborly solidarity. That's my thesis to us. That in the beginning God rested and so did all of creation, including humanity, and all of creation must learn to rest in God's presence and understanding that in that resting we are not untethered from one another that actually in that sacred rest we actually remember how we are tethered together too so in the torah book what we call the exodus here's what we find <clears throat> just let's step back because we need to know our story because a people who don't know their story cannot know their future a people who do not who are not willing to remember their past a people who censor their past are a people who enter into the future with their eyes closed so we need to know our story. In the Torah, the book we call the Exodus, we find God's people living through 400 years of enslavement. Slave labor to Egypt and Pharaoh's empire is all they have known. They make bricks. That's what they do. They make bricks to house grain. Grain is Pharaoh's number one commodity. The more grain Egypt sells, the more gold Egypt makes. You with me? The more gold Egypt makes, the more power they hold. If they want to keep their power, they have to make more. They have to get more gold. If they want to get more gold, they got to make more grain. And if they make more grain, they got to have places to store them, so they got to make more bricks. Do you see how it works? That is the cycle of labor economy, slave labor economy, Yahweh's people find themselves in. This is a system of slave labor. And they cry out for God year after year to the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they wonder, are they lost? Are we lost on God? But God, but Exodus shows us that God listens to their cries. God looks to their injustice. God will liberate them from this oppression. And so God raises up Moses. God raises up Aaron to speak as God's voice, to demonstrate God's power over Pharaoh and all of Pharaoh's false gods. To liberate and prove to the Hebrew people, to Pharaoh and all of Egypt, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the true and living God, the great I am, and there is no one else worthy of comparison. And then, of course, we know how the story goes, right? A few months later, after ten plagues and a miraculous walk across dry land through the Red Sea, the Hebrew people are free. Their bodies are liberated. Stay with me. But their consciousness is not. All they have known, generation after generation, all they know about a society, all they know about a nation, 
is a slave labor economy and systems of anxiety and systems of coercion and systems of scarcity, the fear of not enough to go around. That's all they know. They have been formed in their very bodies. I'm talking generational trauma in their actual bodies and their nervous systems and brains formed in that narrative. And now they're free. They're liberated, but their consciousness, their nervous system, their brain is not. So Moses spends time with God on the mountain of Sinai, and God gives Moses a word, not just a word, but a lot of words that we call the Ten Commandments. So Moses steps down into these liberated bodies that are still in possession of enslaved consciousness where their way of thinking about life and their way of thinking about what it means to interact with one another is still called up in the narrative of the systems of a slave labor economy of anxiety and fear and coercion, control and manipulation and, 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 and exclusivism. They're formed by that. Moses enters into that. And God speaks through Moses. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Here's what it says. Then, the God, then God spoke all of these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You must not bow down to them and worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sin to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the foreigner who is within your gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may have a long life in the land that your Lord, your God, has given you. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony or bear false witness against your neighbor. Do not crave your neighbor's house. Do not crave your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox or donkey, and anything that belongs to your neighbor. These commands, these Ten Commandments, as we call them. If you read them within their context of the entirety of the Exodus story and even the Deuteronomy story, you find that these commands offer God's people a way of life that promotes love for God and love for one another. And if it's obeyed, it can liberate them, heart, mind, body, and soul, neighbor to neighbor. And this is why at the very beginning, God reminds them of their past enslavement and present liberation. Look at the text again. God says, before he says anything else, before he issues a command, God reminds them of their past so that they can clearly see their present. Stay with me. And have a big enough imagination for a new kind of future. Yahweh says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Y'all, this is important. God knows that the freedom abundance and the accumulation of material things brings can lead to a form of amnesia. It can lead to forgetfulness. 
And this kind of amnesia, that's what leads to the disunity between them and God and between themselves. God doesn't want them to forget who they've been or how far they've come. God doesn't want them to forget who they were, to whom they have always belonged, and for what purposes they were created. If God's people forget their past, they will forget their dependence upon God for the present and the future. A people unwilling, any people, any nation, this nation, any people unwilling to remember the full story of their past close their eyes to a clear view of their present and disable their future. So God reminds them of their past to open their eyes to envision a better future. Two of the most repeated phrases you hear in the Torah is remember you were slaves in Egypt once too. Remember you were slaves in Egypt once too. I imagine the Israelites were like, can we let the past be the past? And Yahweh was like, remember, you were slaves in Egypt once too. And every time Yahweh reminds them of that over and over again, it is because Yahweh is trying to fund their imagination to see a better future where there are no slaves. Where the widow, the immigrant, and the orphan, and the poor are loved and cared for in the purposes of God. And the practice that the people of God are supposed to have that is a visible demonstration. Everybody say visible demonstration a visible demonstration of their trust in the, and their dependence upon God and their commitment to neighborly solidarity, the practice that the people of God were to have every week of their life was Sabbath. Where nobody was in charge, not even the economy. That's the history. So the verse three commands that follow God's reminder of their past, we know has to do with the worth of God. Do not have other gods besides me because you know that didn't work for Egypt. Do not make an idol for yourself because you know that didn't work for Egypt. Do not misuse my name and take me lightly because that didn't work for Egypt. For Pharaoh. That's the story. And then these first three commands that establish the basis of God's promise, the basis of God's covenant with God's people that date back to Abraham, anchor the people of God in relationship with God. And then there comes the Sabbath. But then after that, the six to five commands that establish the basis of neighborliness and how their lives are tied together in solidarity. It spells out what it means to be a free and just society as a unified people under God when God says to them, honor your parents, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false witness against your neighbor, do not crave your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's slaves or your neighbor's ox or donkey or anything for that matter that belongs to your neighbor. These commands, beloved, were to remind them that they are not a collective of autonomous individuals. Are you with me? That's important. Because we live in a moment where we think we're a collective of autonomous individuals. And we know that's not true because of last week's increasing dependence and unfolding that the scripture shows us in our increasing dependence upon God. But here it's even a more stark reminder that although they are free, they're not entitled to do whatever they want. That although they are free, they're not free to become whoever they want if it hurts someone else. Notice the emphasis of neighbor in the story. 
These commands are about neighborliness and creating a just and truly free society where the God who liberated them from Pharaoh liberates them from their own selfish impulses. And this is the context of Sabbath. And while the people of God are caught up in this endless cycle of work created by the oppressive systems of empire, God listened, God looked, God liberated. And Sabbath now becomes this visible demonstration of their dependence upon God who still listens, who still looks, who still liberates. Sabbath is this act of freedom because it invites God's people to, as a society, enter into sacred rest while not forgetting, everybody say not forgetting, forgetting. neighborly solidarity. This is why Sabbath is more than a family vacation, a getaway. I got to get away from everybody else. That's not Sabbath. That's rest, and that's beautiful, and that's necessary, but it's not sacred rest. Because sacred rest always makes space, makes room, creates strength for neighborly solidarity. See, with Sabbath as their practice, they can live out the laws that they're about to receive that's going to establish them as an actual nation. Beloved, remember, they're not a nation right now. Matter of fact, the only nation they've ever known is Pharaoh's. They're not, a, they're not, they, don't, they don't have economics. They don't have legislation. They don't have court systems. But what's going to happen in, in Exodus and Deuteronomy is Moses is going to walk them through the construction of society. They're going to build society with government, with politics, with economics, with judge and jury, with priests and all. They're going to build their society, but before, they don't know. They don't know what that looks like. And so these commands come to them as a map, as a guide that says, if your society moves you away from these things, it is not a society over which God reigns. And if they don't want to be like Pharaoh's empire... They need a practice that reminds them that they depend upon God. They need a practice that reminds them that God alone is the one who provides. The land they will farm for food will yield crops only because God's blessing will rest over them. The laws they will enact to promote a culture of love, mercy, peace, and justice will come to them not by the clever mind of Moses, but by the mind of God. And if they forget these things, if in accumulation of things and land and power if within the accumulation of abundance they develop a sense of amnesia and buy into some Israel exceptionalism and begin to think that they have done it all on their own and they will become like Pharaoh. If they begin thinking that in providing and consuming they must work harder and longer hours They will create a system of anxiety based upon the subtle belief that they are the reasons the fields yield the crops and not God. Come on now. They'll be like Pharaoh. If they forget their dependence upon God and that God is God and they are not, they'll give themselves over to the endless cycle of production and this will become their new enslavement. They'll be like Pharaoh. 
Workers will be treated like commodity, like labor commodities. Animals will be treated like labor commodities. Families will be treated like labor commodities. Other humans will be a means to an end. And the image of God will be missed in all. And that's when enemies get made and that's when violence happens. The Sabbath command breaks the cycles of anxiety and coercion and resists the fears of not enough. It resists the competing for power. It resists the fear of scarcity. It resists the providing and consuming to the degree that we lose sight of our own humanity and the humanity of our neighbor. Sabbath becomes a day assigned by God where they learn to cease striving, cease controlling, cease working, cease providing, cease consuming, cease competing, cease producing, and instead rest and simply be present as humans made in God's image, dependent upon the Lord who listens, looks, and liberates and can remembers their solidarity with one another. Sabbath is sacred rest and neighborly solidarity. Sabbath, beloved, is an inward act of defiance to those anxieties that have the best of us. Sabbath is an outward act of defiance that tells me my neighbor is a means to my end. Sabbath is a practice that keeps God's people whole, pushes back against our tendency toward anxiety and coercion and the fears of not enough and to produce and produce and consume and consume and accumulate and accumulate, which at the end does keep us from drawing closer to God. What does all this mean? How does this look like practically? I have some ideas. If I didn't, this would have been terrible. Because right now, it's like, well, that's not very encouraging. Like, what are we doing with that? You know, like, everybody quits their job tomorrow. I quit. Man, no, not where this is going. All right, so seriously, what could this look like practically? All right, I'm going to give you a large picture vision. First off, I don't know what it looks like for you. I'm not that smart. I'm a, lot, I'm a lot stronger than I look, but I'm not smarter than I look. I don't know, but, but I can give some ideas. Here's, here's what I think. If what I'm about to do draws me toward increasing dependence on God, then go in that direction. That might look very much like a Sabbath thing. If what I'm about to do draws me into a heightened awareness of my solidarity with my neighbor, where I recognize that what I do can be for the good of my neighbor, then that looks a lot like Sabbath. And here's why I say it that way. Because sometimes Sabbath looks like saying no to the things that pull us away. Sometimes Sabbath looks like saying no to the things that pull us away from greater dependence upon God. Sometimes saying no looks like Sabbath 
when we say no to the things that would cause me to miss, like truly miss the humanity of my neighbor or my need for my neighbor. Things that move me toward consumerism and production always threaten to move me away from dependence upon God. So, Sabbath for us, contextualized, is about rhythms of life. Not just a day. It can be a day. But it looks more to me, in my view, like a rhythm of life to catch the spirit of the Sabbath. See, when we came into the New Covenant, we captured the spirit of these things, not just the letter. It may look like saying no to good opportunities. Y'all, it may look like saying no to a job promotion because that job will pull me further away from a commitment to neighborly solidarity or may somehow convince me that I'm the one getting it done and that in order to do that, I've got to produce even more. It may look like saying no to a good job opportunity. Saying no to a good opportunity Maybe even a job change, because no matter what, these things could thrust me deeper into the systems of anxiety, coercion, and consumerism God is trying to liberate me from. It may look like saying no to social media for a while, because the tweets, TikTok videos, and posts cause me to dig into my ideology and away and away from compassionate presence with others with whom I disagree, I would rather not be with. It may even look like that. It may look like saying no even to other good things that keep me from making connections to God's people, my brothers and sisters. Sometimes it may look like reprioritizing, adjusting schedules, or reevaluating commitments. Y'all, I struggle with this. I don't stand here saying I have rhythms of Sabbath in my life like a boss. I'm limping along with rhythms of Sabbath. But my inability to hold to it faithfully doesn't change what the Scripture is calling us to live. And the good news is if we all can figure this out together, the better off we'll all be because we're in it together. Guard one another's backs. Protect one another's values. Right? Love one another for God's sake. I do know that for my family, one of the things we decided is that Ian wouldn't, we wouldn't be a two-sports family. That... I, and this is just the decision we made, that I just we didn't want Ian to be strained between two sports that extended the seasons, that made his life, that disabled his life from being able to have time for student ministry and time for church family, that made his life such a way that we would have to be there that would also bring us away from commitments to church family. This has nothing to do with pastoral vocation. This has to do with the neighborly solidarity, that if we had our schedules so filled with so many things, would we have room to do other meaningful and good things when really one sport can do? Come on. Now, don't get me wrong. My boy wants to play in the NBA, and I'm, I'm, re I'm cheering for him. I'm here for it. He's got better chance of being struck by lightning and hit by a shark, eat by a shark at the same time, but I'm here for it. <laughs> like, like, and we're going to work toward it. We're going to get after it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be his biggest cheerleader and sometimes his coach. But when we say yes to some things, we're saying no to others. That's what Allison always tells both of us. <laughs> now, Fred and Ian, 
When you say yes to some things, you're saying no to others. And that is a rhythm of Sabbath. What I'm saying, beloved, is that sacred rest is more than a family vacation and a family getaway. Sacred rest and neighborly solidarity is anything that resists the systems of anxiety, coercion, and violence that creates disunity inside of me, between me and God, and between me and the church, and between me and my neighbors. It is all those things, I think. It's about the beliefs and actions and sometimes the stillness that leads me into an increasing dependence on God and increasing solidarity with one another so that together we can all grow in faithfulness. Sabbath, understood in this way, may look like learning how to let go of the things that cause me to be so defensive in my life and push me into a greater dependence for God and a greater presence with others. Sabbath may look different for all of us in some way, but the outcome still should be the same. And the outcome is increasing dependence upon the provision of God as creator and provider and liberator and increasing commitment to neighborly solidarity. That's the outcome, I think. What it looks like for you is a road you must travel, and the best way to travel that road is to do it in community and let's discern it together. The outcome's the same. Where we have the strength and capacity to be the kind of people that God has invited us to become. A people whose bodies may be liberated from the reign of sin and death. A people whose souls may be liberated from the reign of sin and death. But also a people whose consciousness is liberated from the reign of sin and death. Too many times churches spend a lot of time trying to liberate souls and bodies and forget consciousness. We can be free and still be enslaved. Be free, beloved. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.